I am joined today for episode number 18 of the Between the Levees podcast. Uh, Ms. Sherry Felder recommended that I speak to this gentleman. I'd like to welcome Mr. Brian Haven to the uh, to the podcast here. Mr. Brian, good morning to you. Uh, good morning, Tim. Thank you for joining me. Uh, as all these start, please tell me, where were you born, sir? I was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 1960. What were your parents doing at the time? Uh, when I was born, uh, my, uh, my dad was working uh, for what back then was called Standard Oil. It was the, uh, the ExxonMobil refinery uh, in Baton Rouge. I think my mom was working for the Louisiana Department of Welfare. She was a social worker. The other job, I suppose, that part of our connection to the maritime industry is my dad was also <clears throat> had a very small company that was run out of our family home when I was born. Um, it was a tankerman service and it was called Petroleum Service Corporation. So he had uh, multiple jobs, uh, working shift work out at the refinery. Uh, he also did some, uh, built some apartments and did some other entrepreneurial things, but mainly petroleum service uh, and this, his job at Standard Oil. Where did your father's story begin? Where was he born? Where did he grow up? So my dad grew up um, on what is now Fort Polk. Uh, in uh, western Louisiana, the uh, army base there, um, very rural. Uh, he was born in 1915. Uh, they had no uh, uh, electricity or facilities. It was the most rural of existence, log cabin. Um, he was the oldest of eight children, four boys and four girls. And his mom had him when she was 16. So it was a very primitive existence. Um, they they, they chop wood for uh, to, to take to town on the weekends and sell. He rode a horse several miles to school. Um, and it's it's a wonderful story in its own right, which actually Louisiana State University has captured his oral history as well as my mother's um, and it's part of their library. But he grew up in Leesville and then um, they were sharecroppers and moved around the state in the Great Depression, uh, picking cotton and doing what they could to make ends meet. But he wound up eventually graduating from high school uh, here in Baton Rouge at Central High School, and then <clears throat> enrolled at LSU as a freshman, but uh, probably in the middle 1930s. But back then, there were no laws uh, around age discrimination, and, and they weren't hiring people over 40. And so my dad had to quit school after one year and uh, get a job to support his parents and, uh, and his brothers and sisters. So he only had one year of college. And that's when he went to work uh, for Standard Oil uh, at the Baton Rouge refinery, but he worked on the riverboats. That was the job that they gave him. That was the lowest rung on the ladder. And uh, after he passed his swim test, uh, they, they put him uh, working as a deckhand on riverboats. How did his career develop from there? Well, um, again, it, it's a, it's its own wonderful story, which has been told. And uh, I think it's a story of America, really. He and my mom of uh, what they call the greatest generation. And of course, I'm not here to tell his story, but my story is intricately bound up with his and how I came to be doing what I'm doing today. But uh, uh, dad, uh, back in the 30s, um, there was just beginning the effort for organized labor with some of the laws that were being passed in Congress that allowed men to unionize. And so, um, so my dad at a very young age uh, became kind of a leader among the, the men working on the river. And back then, um, it's very primitive, uh, hard to believe that this was only, uh, you know, 80 something years ago, but um, some of the barges were actually made out of cypress. Uh, they had uh, paddle wheelers uh, sometimes for, uh, for, for push boats. Uh, my dad actually worked on the largest ever paddle wheeler uh, called the Sprague, uh, which was the largest one on the inland waterways. But <clears throat> the, the conditions the men had to work under were pretty primitive. And so, for example, they would send the men uh, off the boat uh, into the swamps alongside the river, and they would go uh, pick Spanish moss uh, themselves and stuff their own mattresses. Uh, they didn't have cotton. Uh, ticking. And so one of the uh, improvements that my dad was able to to get through Standard Oil was um, to have cotton mattresses put on the on the boats and also 
um, the men had to wash their own oily clothes with, uh, with a washboard. And so my dad was able to get washing machines uh, installed on the boat. So those kind of things um, didn't exist uh, before, but uh, he was instrumental in helping all that happen. And of course, Standard Oil paved the way for what became, you know, those common sense industry standards uh, as things went along. But then eventually um, the war came along, World War II, Pearl Harbor, and my dad left work and enrolled um, actually in the Coast Guard, although he, and he went to the Coast Guard Academy for training, but he was assigned to the, uh, to the Navy and he spent 37 months on a destroyer uh, in the Pacific. And uh, so by then he had married my mother. They had met at LSU. They were married in June of, of 1941. So right after they married, uh, he uh, went off uh, <clears throat> to serve in the military. And uh, that in itself is another fascinating story of, of you know, wartime. And uh, during that time, my, my oldest brother, Cordell, was born. Uh, my mom lived in San Diego. So, so it's an interesting story, not unlike a lot of people from what they call the greatest generation back then. But when my dad returned from the war, uh, it would have been, I guess, in 1945. And so uh, Standard Oil, was, uh, they hired back everyone who had left. And um, they had a huge uh, workforce out there. They had 10,000 people uh, working at the Standard Oil Refinery, which it would hard to comprehend that many people uh, working in that facility. Um, but that's how many there were uh, immediately after the war and the post-war boom. <clears throat> so they moved my dad off the riverboats and had him on the dock um, working as a, they trained him to be a tankerman uh, and a dock operator um, there in the late forties. And then interestingly, sometime in the late forties, early fifties, uh, Standard Oil had always provided all of the people, uh, including my dad to do all of the tankerman work, the loading and unloading of the barges that called at the docks. And, uh, for whatever reason, <clears throat> I really don't know. And, and my dad wasn't sure either. Standard Oil management made the decision that its own employees, including my dad, uh, would no longer load and unload the barges on behalf of the barge companies, uh, that, that the barge companies would be required uh, to perform that service themselves or arrange for it. And so <clears throat> that immediately created kind of a void because when the barges would show up at the docks, the, the barge companies didn't have enough people riding the boats or I guess other folks they could get access to. So there was an immediate kind of manpower shortage. So my dad saw the opportunity to create a, a service and it was the first ever barge tankerman service in the United States. Um, and really it was he and some of his coworkers. Uh, and back then they worked eight hour shifts. So they had uh, eight hours on and, and they had 16 hours off. So they had time in their off time to come back and kind of moonlight uh, as, as tankermen working directly for the barge lines. And so that was the genesis of what became the first tankerman service called Petroleum Service Corporation. And that was incorporated in 1952, uh, eight years before I was born. And it was just a way for <clears throat> my dad and his co-workers to make a little extra money. Uh, the Standard Oil management um, had no problem with uh, them doing that. They, they didn't see an issue, which I'm not sure would be the case today. But um, they would come back to the dock wearing a petroleum service hard hat and then a few hours later come back wearing an Exxon hard hat uh, doing dock operating and other things. So that was kind of the genesis of the first barge tankerman service. And it was run from our family home uh, here in Baton Rouge. And when I grew up, when I was born in 1960, and I remember my early years uh, being around the house at payday every two weeks, the guys would show up at our home and, uh, you know, my dad would calculate their times and and on a paper and pencil and write them a check. But they would hang out at the house. And I got to know uh, people from the marine marine industry at a very, very early age. So that's how I got introduced uh, to the business. The company phone was actually in my bedroom uh, when I was a little kid because my dad knew that as a little boy, I would go back to sleep much quicker than my mom. 
so my job was to answer the phone if it rang in the middle of the night and quietly go wake him up if and bring him and he would talk about whatever the issues were and I would hear all that and then go back to sleep. So um, that was my very early introduction to the barge industry. Okay, and how was early life for you growing up? <clears throat> well, you know, we were very middle class, uh, but but we were lucky because uh, you know, I got to grow up in a very stable home environment um, in the sense that uh, I was the youngest of five children. Um, and I was kind of my dad's afterthought. Uh, it, I was born when both he and my mom were in their forties, <clears throat> which was late back then. Um, but so I had older brothers and sisters, but I was fortunate in that because my dad worked for Standard Oil and that was the job. And then the, the family business was there in Baton Rouge. Uh, I lived in the same home growing up from the time I was born until I, I went away to college when I was 18. And and it was a very stable kind of uh, lifestyle. Um, and I was blessed with, you know, a, a, a number of friends that are still friends today. And we all grew up in the same neighborhood. And, and, and likewise, you know, I had a very middle class uh, 1960s uh, upbringing. Um, and my mom worked and my dad worked. Uh, I remember when we got air conditioning in the house because my mom, where she worked, they had air conditioning and she couldn't come home having been in an office that was cool all day and then uh, come home to a hot house in South Louisiana in the summer. And I remember when we got indoor carpet for the first time, we had hardwood floors. And um, so my mom was real proud of her wall to wall carpet. And uh, uh, but then a tankerman whose name, I guess I'll go ahead and reveal he's long passed away. Robert Bartholomew had been on a styrene barge and uh, Robert had some styrene on his boots, apparently. And he came to our house to get paid and he walked on my mom's carpet and got all that styrene smell <laughs> in my mom's carpet. So I can remember uh, there was hell to pay uh, with my dad, but, but eventually the smell went away. So I went to, to Broadmoor High, uh, Broadmoor Elementary, Broadmoor Middle School, Broadmoor Junior High back then they called it in Broadmoor High School and graduated uh, in 1978. So you know, in the summers before I was 18, I was around the family business, which was still pretty small back then, but but it had actually begun to morph in the in the 1960s from being just a tankerman service with, um, you know, maybe a 10 men or, or maybe a, a few more, but but not many more than that. But then as industry along the lower Mississippi River between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, that was the time the industry was starting to be developed. And so... Uh, Shell Chemical built their uh, facility in Geismar, Louisiana in, uh, I believe, 1967. So they called my dad. Um, my dad wasn't an engineer. He'd only had one year of, of college, but they called him to help with designing the dock. And I think the reason they did that was because they knew he knew a lot about how things worked or should work. And so they called him out there for some practical advice on setting up the dock. And that wound up um, leading to conversation and the ultimately the contracting of the dock work uh, to uh, Petroleum Service, our, our family business. And um, I guess the idea was that vessels weren't at the dock all the time. And just like Tankerman, where you call them out and uh, they meet the vessel and then they go away. That's a very efficient model so that you're only paying for the service when you need it versus having people ride the boat all the time uh, as a as a tankerman getting tankerman wages so that shore tankerman model that my dad kind of invented in the early 50s with petroleum service that same kind of model could apply to the contract operation of docks and so that was pioneered as far as we know at Shell uh, there at Geismar in 1967. And then as other plants got built in the area, um, you know, folks found out about that idea and wanted to copy it. And then the next thing you know, um, that kind of migrated across the levee, that kind of service into rail and truck loading and other things to do with product handling and material handling. Uh, on the in-plant side of the of the business. And so that really became the business model uh, for Petroleum Service. It was an outsource model 
uh, for material handling, but it all started and for um, up until the recently, let's say 20 years ago, that was the mainstay uh, of the business, although the implant work is now significantly larger. So uh, I grew up around that and then went to college um, in Texas and worked summers uh, in the in the family business, got my tankerman's license when I was 18 and uh, uh, loaded barges and did other things. Um, then went to law school at LSU and still continued to, to work uh, when I could uh, for the, you know, in the family business, doing all the things of rail and truck and, and learning all of that. But then went off um, after I graduated in 1985 uh, left and went to uh, to New York. Um, the, the oil bust had hit uh, the, the Gulf South in the mid 80s. And I don't know, not so much because of that, but just because like a lot of young people, I wanted to go see the world and and set my own path and and immediately going to work for the family business wasn't uh, what I chose to do at that time. So I, I went to New York and then ultimately wound up in Southern California as a practicing attorney and spent several years in uh, San Diego practicing law there uh, in my twenties. Um, but I always loved home, loved, uh, you know, grew up on LSU sports and hunting and fishing and all the things, uh, you know, the food and the cooking and, and all the outdoor stuff that is such an important part of the Gulf coast and particularly South Louisiana. So ultimately uh, decided I didn't want to make my life in uh, Southern California and moved back uh, in late 1990 and joined the, the family business petroleum service, which was still relatively small at that time, but, but had been around obviously almost 40 years and, um, probably had about 130 or 40 employees. Um, a good chunk of them were tankermen, but, you know, working at three or four or five different uh, industrial facilities up and down the Mississippi uh, doing the kind of work I described. So that's when I came back home and and kind of officially joined the industry, although I'd worked in it for a number of years part time. Were your siblings involved in the family business? Yes. Yeah, so my my oldest brother, who's also was a, a lawyer and spent many years in active practice, Cordell, uh, when he finished law school in 1965, um, he was mainly a practicing attorney here in Baton Rouge, but he helped uh, my dad uh, just uh, kind of organically uh, with, you know, whatever the issues were, contracts and business planning and being a think partner uh, for my dad. Uh, but he was primarily an attorney. Over the years, he kind of, as, as petroleum service grew, <clears throat> I, 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 he spent more and more of his time working um, in the in the family business until when I came home in the uh, in late 1990. So a good good many years later, <clears throat> he I know retired officially from the practice of law. As did I. Uh, when, when I came home, I I left the practice of law, and and we both worked full time on the family business. I also have another brother, Martin, uh, and Martin um, went from college. Uh, he, he went to. Uh, University of Louisiana Lafayette. And then he was a tankerman as well and had worked as I did, uh, you know, during school. Then he joined and um, worked in what they called personnel back then, but now HR. And, um, but eventually after 20 years, uh, he left uh, the, the company and, uh, and kind of retired, frankly, uh, in the early 90s. And uh, I have two sisters as well. Uh, but neither of them ever worked uh, formally uh, in the in the family business. What was the draw to law school for you and your oldest brother? You know, uh, I, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. I couldn't speak for him. Uh, I know he was a very gifted student and uh, graduated, I think, salutatorian at LSU Law School. So he he could have had an amazing law career and, in fact, um, served on some uh, very prestigious uh, positions in the legal profession, he was president of the Bar Association and president, or, or at least a member of a, a think tank in New Orleans called the Louisiana Law Institute. For me, I guess, um, I, I don't know. I, uh, I was always good at uh, a debate and, and 
trying to think things through. Uh, but like a lot of young people, I you know I didn't give it a lot of thought. Uh, I didn't have a better idea. Um, and so I, I, I wanted that challenge, I suppose. But it was interesting that having grown up in the industry and, you know, you never appreciate things till you get away from them sometimes. And having lived in the same home in the same neighborhood my whole life and traveled a little bit, but not much, I wanted to see the bright lights in the big city. So I, you know, I went to New York and then Southern California and, and did big things, worked with a big law firm and did fancy stuff. But ultimately what I missed were the people of our industry who I grew up with and to this day, just love. They are the kind of people that um, make America great. And I, I said that long before that phrase was uh, became popular here in recent years. And um, and just love everything about this part of the world, despite its problems uh, that that we have with you know natural disasters and other things that people don't like. There's so much to love about this place, uh, Louisiana, the Gulf Coast, and the people of our industry. So I've never looked back on the decision to practice law. I learned a lot. I still apply my legal training almost every day and always have. Uh, it's a wonderful skill set to have, but, uh, but it wasn't my passion. Uh, and litigation, which is what I did, you know, you wake up every day and you're in some kind of conflict. Uh, maybe it's not your conflict. Maybe you've been hired to resolve someone else's conflict. But I was more about building things and building relationships that would last a long time and doing high stakes litigation uh, for huge companies. Um, I, I just kind of felt like uh, justice uh, wasn't always uh, served. And sometimes it was just money moving around. And I wanted to build something with people that uh, that I loved and something sustainable. So that's why I made the decision to leave the practice of law and come back to, uh, uh, to the industry. What did you study in undergrad and how was the college experience in, in the late seventies? So I went to the university of Texas. Um, uh, you know, I, I didn't give, <laughs> I look today at my own kids who are 23 and 25 and what they went through and what I know a lot of people go through with college shopping and selecting colleges and all the admissions process I, mine was so uh, haphazard and kind of matter of fact, it's uh, it's kind of scary. Uh, I knew I wanted to go to wait to school just again be, to see see stuff different. And um, I had applied uh, uh, to Rice University and uh, where my both my older brother and sister had gone. But I was on the waiting list there and it was getting to be June and I wasn't quite sure where I was going to school. And my older sister said, you know, and this was in 1977, I think, uh, 78. She said, you know, Austin's a really nice town and, uh, and Texas is a cool place. You should, you should think about that. So I applied uh, there, uh, sent, sent in my scores. And next thing you know, I get an acceptance letter. And um, <laughs> the first day I ever set foot on campus uh, was the first day of class. I, I packed up and, uh, and drove uh, with everything in my car to Austin, uh, where I'd never been, um, and arrived the night before classes started, which was sometime in late August in 1978. Um, I wound up uh, majoring in English and history uh, with a minor in business. And uh, so I had a very liberal arts uh, kind of education, uh, which which has always served me well. And uh, I, I know that um, today, um, the, the, that kind of humanities uh, uh, curriculum, uh, not a lot of people uh, appreciate it because there's not maybe an obvious job, but uh, that, as opposed to engineering or other uh, more vocational things. But um, I can tell you that my undergraduate education uh, served me very well and law school helped me think, think more clearly and, and think about things in ways that help too. But uh, but, but I had a wonderful time, um, graduated uh, there uh, in 1982 and then went straight on to law school. But Austin was a great place in, in that time. It, was, it, it hadn't lost its innocence like it has now and it hadn't been overrun by um, tech or, or outsiders. And uh, it, it, was, it was a wonderful place to go to school.
So you finish up school, you attend law school, you practice law for a period of time, and then you come back home to join the family business. Tell me what you were doing at that point and how the, your career developed. Well, so um, my my very my first job when I came back was uh, uh, I was given the title of director of health, safety, and environmental, and uh, and I was the first ever person to hold that job at at our at the family business because um, you know that wasn't quite the thing uh, that it it certainly is now and was becoming at that time, but the background of that is. Um, this is a little bit of industry history, but but going back to, I think about 1987, there was a huge chemical explosion at a Union Carbide facility in a place called Bhopal, India. And it killed an awful lot of people and it made headlines and it really brought a lot of attention to the chemical industry, particularly around safety. And uh, people began asking uh, more questions, whether it were uh, politicians or or all kinds of interest groups about how safe are these chemical plants. So that started a, a lot more effort on the part of the chemical industry to focus on training, focus on procedures, things like that. Then in, I think it was 1989, uh, what was then Exxon uh, had the very memorable maritime disaster uh, at Valdez. Uh, where the Exxon uh, shipping uh, uh, oil tanker, the Valdez, ran aground and spilled a lot of oil. And that was sort of the refining and, and oil industries, Bhopal, uh, because that brought into focus all kinds of things around training and work hours and, 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 and issues um, that went straight to the heart of, of how companies are managed. So that then led to legislation uh, the Oil Pollution Act of 1990. Uh, and then at the same time, there was continuing to be a lot of emphasis on processes, um, more formal processes. So back then, everyone was talking about what was called the quality process with a capital Q. And um, the quality principles, which were being introduced uh, most memorably in the car industry, uh, with Toyota and a guy named Richard Deming. This is a kind of ancient business history, but all of those things were coming together in the, in the barge industry and in the refining industry and in the chemical industry to make everyone suddenly sit up and say, where are our, what is, where are our procedures? Are they written down? Do we actually follow our procedures? Where is our training? Who's doing it? Are they qualified? All of this, uh, formalization was really beginning to crystallize in the early 1990s. Uh, and so my first job, which was a great, wonderful job for me to have, was to be the director of health, safety, and environmental because I could use my legal uh, training. Uh, and I was a good writer uh, and I was a good researcher. So I wrote uh, from scratch the first ever health and safety manual for uh, petroleum service, uh, which was a project that took several months, um, but it, it was a great way, even though I'd been around the industry a lot, I, I really was able to dig very deep into uh, the way things worked because I went out and spent lots and lots of time in the field asking, you know, our employees and others, you know, how do you do that? Why do you do it that way? I, I, I researched uh, with, you know, best practices from all the companies that I could find and they were very helpful. And so, so that was my first job was to introduce more formal safety and training processes into petroleum service, which was huge because the industry was kind of starving for that. And that really helped our business because then uh, bigger companies that we were working for really liked uh, that we were being responsive and thinking about the same things that they were thinking about. And uh, that helped our business grow. So I, I held that position for about five years and um, then ultimately uh, moved into uh, operations. Uh, so we hired someone else uh, to kind of take over my role as uh, in health and safety and environmental. And then um, I was over all of our operations uh, in, uh, in Louisiana. So we had several hundred employees uh, by then. 
And then ultimately, by the late 90s, um, I became the uh, executive VP and chief operating officer. And by then, we were probably up to, I don't know, 500 employees or so. But, but we, were, we were working for most of the major companies in the industry, whether they were barge lines, but also some very significant new customers on the plant loading and unloading side with rail and truck and other things, and notably Exxon when they outsourced for the very first time, we, we took um, the responsibility for the loading at the Baton Rouge chemical plant and replaced Exxon's own union employees, which was the first time Exxon had ever outsourced anything like that. And, and while we had worked for many wonderful companies for a long time, the Exxon move got a lot of people's attention and, and outsourcing, and that word had now become in vogue. It was invented I don't know. I don't know when it was invented, but I'd never heard it for a long time before the 90s. Um, outsourcing then became more fashionable for this kind of product handling. And so the company began to grow uh, a, a good bit during the, the mid 90s and into the early 2000s. Okay. And where did your career take you thereafter? Yeah, well, the next the next big thing then, right, was um, so... We had we were being approached, and and the company was owned. Uh, when I came back to uh, uh, to Baton Rouge from San Diego in uh, in late 1990, so uh, I was uh, the the owners of the company were my dad, uh, my older brother uh, Cordell, and me. And uh, and my brother Martin had owned some, but he left not long after I got there, and so I bought uh, I, I bought in and had well. It's a lot of family estate planning, let's put it that way, uh, of, of how all that worked. So I, I became an owner and, uh, and Martin left and Cordell and my dad and I were the owners. And so um, we were approached once we got to a kind of critical mass, I suppose companies would come along and say, are you interested in, in selling your company? So there were always those kind of inquiries and those became more frequent. Uh, as we got up to several hundred employees and expanding our geographic footprint, which when I joined, we were mostly Gulf Coast, uh, you know, Houston, uh, kind of where the barge industry went um, and beginning to have some in-plant presence over in Houston. But, uh, but then uh, as that geographic footprint began to expand a little bit into the um, Ohio region, Ohio River region, the upper Ohio, places we hadn't been before, then companies began to solicit us more about a sale. And we weren't at all interested in that. We were loving what we were doing. But then going back, it seems like forever ago, but back then uh, there was a downturn in the U.S. industry in the early 2000s. And the chemical industry was kind of in the tank. Um, all of the new chemical facilities around the world were being built uh, overseas where the natural gas was cheap. So they were being built in Southeast Asia. They were being built in the Middle East and some in South America. Uh, the American U.S. refining industry was uh, really struggling. And so the, all of our customers were in some kind of distress, and it seemed like. And, of course, the barge industry tends to follow, you know, whatever the refining and chemical industry is doing. And so we... Uh, the, the forecast as far as about as anybody could look wasn't for growth. It was for a kind of continuing decline uh, in, in the domestic refining and chemical industry. And so a company that we knew and had heard of for many, many years, a big international company called SGS um, out of Geneva, Switzerland, um, they came along and made us uh, uh, an offer kind of out of the blue. And it was interesting that they found out about us because one of our ex-tankermen uh, actually worked for SGS. And when they were thinking about new companies to acquire and new things to do, he, uh, he suggested us. And uh, so they wound up calling on us. And for a lot of reasons that are, some of them are business reasons, some of them are family reasons, um, lots of reasons. We made the decision to sell the family business up. Uh, Petroleum Service to SGS in in 2004. Um, so we made that decision, and um, that that happened. And then we stayed on. My older brother and I, uh, as well as all of the employees, it was really uh, uh, mostly a non-event in terms of our customers. 
but but we became owned by a company out of Switzerland, and so that was a uh, a big deal in the industry. Took a lot of notice of that, but we maintained our people, our leadership, and our and our good quality work. So externally, not much change, but internally, for me especially, the liaisoning and interfacing between a European owner. And, uh, and, a, and, a, and our family business was a, a time of tremendous change and tremendous uh, challenge. So, um, you know, I, I'm just kind of rambling on here and you're not asking me too many questions, which I guess is the intent. There's, there's so much that I could say about, you know, watching our industry and the evolution of our industry. And I'm sure others have that in your podcast have commented on that, but, you know, the industry, the barge industry, but specifically underwent such tremendous change in the 90s, um, partly because of the kind of focus on regulatory compliance and insurance minimums and things that took a lot of mom and pop companies uh, that could no longer either wanted to or could no longer afford to operate uh, as they had. And so uh, I remember you know, when Kirby Corporation began uh, to emerge uh, on the scene and acquire uh, companies um, and, and become the company that it became. And of course, they were a major customer of ours um, and, and other barge lines that I grew up with that went away either because they were acquired or something else happened. And, you know, there's been a huge amount of consolidation uh, over the years in the uh, in the barge industry. And, and there are others that I'm sure you'll talk to that are more experts on that than I am. But, um, you know, we've, we've been members of the American waterways operators, um, since the, since the mid eighties. And, um, I can remember when that meeting, uh, was, you know, full of colorful characters, the kind that populate, uh, uh, the barge industry, especially. And, um, you know, a lot of those, some of those people are still around and some of their children are around. Uh, a lot of them are, are, have moved on and retired or passed away, but it was just wonderful to grow up in an industry that was uh, so much in the, in the backbone of, of America, doing great things, hiring great people and uh, giving them a wonderful uh, career. You know, when, when petroleum service started, uh, going back a little bit, if I might, um, I can remember one of our first uh, tankermen, a guy named Gerald Amond, that later became the model for the company logo, which is a guy in a hard hat, and they still use that today. But um, uh, Gerald, I remember him telling me he came to work for the company in 1970, and we paid him $2 an hour uh, as a tankerman, and we charged our customers $4 an hour. Uh, so that gives you some sense of perspective um, when my dad was in the industry, there were no going back to his days at Standard Oil as a tankerman. And even in the early days of petroleum service and in the 60s and 70s, there weren't the kind of safety regulations uh, that, that we have now. So I can vividly remember my dad uh, talking about loading four barges at a time and unloading four barges at the same time, which is almost unthinkable since now the regulations and for many years have required one tankerman per barge. Um, but, you know, running literally uh, around and I can remember this was before they invented the, uh, the material that is heat resistant that goes on the bottom of work boots. I guess it's called Vibram uh, got invented at some point, but I can remember uh, rubber soles and on asphalt barges that were 300, plus degrees, uh, guys would actually carve wooden blocks of wood and strap them onto their work boots and maybe put some kind of skid resistant thing on the bottom of them. But, you know, people walking around uh, in, in wooden things, it was a very rough and tumble uh, kind of industry. Uh, uh, the people were a rougher cut, I would say, very colorful. Um, tankerman training had not been developed very much uh, back in the 60s and 70s when I was growing up. It was all on-the-job training, and lots of guys um, 
you know, plenty of barroom fights, plenty of bad marriages, plenty of uh, cars that wouldn't start, uh, plenty of controversy and drama. And then, uh, uh, you know, Petroleum Service was actually as the oldest and largest by far tankerman service. You know, we led the way to uh, introduce uh, things that now are, are um, standard. You know, we introduced uh, vacation. Um, I remember guys never had vacation. They just, if they needed off, they took off, but you know, there was no vacation. There was no, um, there was no real or organized formal training. And I remember, uh, back in the early nineties when Tankerman regulations came out kind of for the first time after the Valdez and Bhopal and some of those regulatory things I was mentioning. And we had one of the country's first ever Coast Guard approved Tankerman schools, uh, which allowed us to recruit people to the industry, uh, Tim, that were not from the industry. Most people that were in the barge industry grew up in the barge industry, much like I did. And, uh, you know, how'd you get in the industry? Well, you know, my daddy was a tankerman. My father, my brother-in-law was a tankerman. My uncle was a boat pilot, you know, that kind of thing. But once we were able to develop a tankerman training school, then we could train people who weren't from our industry, didn't know anything about it, but they were good people with the right kind of work skills and uh, work ethic and all of that and, and train them from scratch. And um, that led to an elevation, I would say, of uh, the caliber of, uh, of, of the kind of folks, not that they weren't good people, but their execution. I can remember a spill a week. Um, you know, being pretty common and, and nobody thought much about it. But, you know, after the Valdez and the Oil Pollution Act and criminal potential penalties for, uh, uh, for oil spills, everybody got very, very focused on not having spills. And so that meant uh, redesign of some equipment changes. I can remember when the, uh, a deck load literally meant a deck load. You would load the two inches from the deck. And, um, you know, it was as much product as that barge could take was, uh, was what you had. And uh, that would be unthinkable today. And I can remember though, guys getting hurt pretty routinely. Uh, I can remember spills pretty routinely, lots of, lots of drama. And now uh, I know with, with my own company and, and in, and in my career, I've seen that go from uh, being something that was uh, not that big a deal and pretty routine occurrence uh, that we just cleaned up and moved on to uh, going significant periods of time with really zero incidents. And I can remember uh, in petroleum service, we would, we would load 30 to 35,000 barges in a year. And on more than one occasion, we achieved a full year with no spills to the water of any kind caused by Tankerman era. And, and no recordable injuries, which was just unthinkable. Uh, but working with our customers um, and working with uh, their customers, uh, it was a real industry achievement uh, when everybody decided, really beginning in the early 1990s and mid-90s, to say, we can do better and we don't have to uh, get guys hurt and we don't have to spill product in the water. And it was part of the industry's commitment to uh, to be a good, uh, you know, corporate citizen. And um, and it's really, really one of the things I'm most proud of is to have been part of that at, because tankermen are at the tip of the spear lots of times uh, on, on this environmental and safety stuff. And they have to face a lot of risk and work in all kinds of conditions and weather. And it's really hot and it's really cold. And trouble getting on and off barges at every kind of facility and low water and high water and every kind of product and, and all of those things. And, uh, and yet we, not only did we adapt, but we, we flourished under the more challenging conditions because the, the tougher it got, the more focused we got and the better we got at training and, and uh, again, working with our customers uh, to, to improve the quality of life for the employees introduce benefits. And I remember we, we introduced for the first time 401k. Uh, nobody had ever heard of that. Uh, we introduced sick pay. Uh, and, and, and I'm not saying we introduced it, but ours was very generous. And so our benefits program at, at Petroleum Service back in the early days was uh, really, we pioneered a lot of that stuff. And, 
so I'm very proud of, of all of that, which kind of leads up to our acquisition by SGS. So said a lot, but let me take a pause and let you ask me another question. Well, next question, I guess that would follow is uh, you sell to SGS, I believe you said in 2004, where does your career take you from there to now? Yeah, so, uh, so, you know, SGS acquired us, they were, and still are the world's largest uh, testing inspection certification company. Uh, so we knew them, uh, as I'm sure lots of people who are going to watch this uh, will know them uh, as having lots of laboratories and sending out inspectors on barges and ships to take samples and run analysis and verify uh, product quality, product quantity. Uh, so we knew them in that capacity. And I think their idea uh, was to, again, coming from, uh, uh, you know, one of our former employees, uh, I'm blanking on his name. Chris is his first name, um, but I'm, I'm blanking on his last name right now. But um, their idea was to kind of do what they call a bolt-on acquisition, which meant that they, they had the idea that as a company that tested and inspected the product, uh, it would make a lot of sense to have a division that would load and unload the product. And, you know, my brother Cordell and I, and my dad, we kind of scratched our head over that whole idea because we said, there's no way that the industry will accept uh, the same company putting the product in the barge or in the rail car or wherever at the ship, wherever it's going to go. And then, and then swear and validate and attest for, for commercial, you know, transactions, what, what the product was and how much of it's in there and, and does it meet all the specifications. But SGS kind of waved off that, you know, conflict of interest idea and their solution, which we were, were very happy with was, well, we're going to leave you guys as an independent entity. Uh, so we'll keep your identity, your, you'll keep your brand. So we were called SGS Petroleum Service Corporation or SGS PSC, which is kind of a mouthful, but we can never find a better name. Um, some people just called us SGS. Some people just called us PSC, but we were our own division. And so I, uh, after a couple of years, became the CEO uh, of the division. So uh, initially my brother was, uh, but then in 2006, I became the CEO of, um, of SGS Petroleum Service. And um, really, I and the very strong leadership team that we had uh, at the time, you know, at, at PSC, we, uh, we just continued to do the work that we always did. And I was part of, uh, along with my brother, we were part of a um, North American and, and, uh, and even international leadership team. So I did a lot of work with my SGS colleagues, but really to our customers and to our employees, uh, the SGS ownership was mostly invisible. Uh, our, our financial people uh, had to send them money every month and, and kind of uh, learn to do accounting now, not as a private company uh, for us, but also as a, uh, uh, in, as a public company, a part of a major public company with international accounting standards. So there were some changes, but really operationally, certainly, and in the heart of the company, nothing did change. So uh, we grew the company uh, in, in the recession uh, came along, uh, I guess, uh, in 2008. Uh, SGS had quite a few leadership changes. So there was some early bumping and grinding uh, uh, with SGS's leadership because we were always talking to new people and some people had different ideas about things than we did. And But, but eventually, they kind of settled in and came to accept us as just a very different kind of company for them and best to leave us alone and let us do what we knew how to do. And um, so when the uh, recession came along in 2009 and 2010, uh, we weathered that along with the rest of the industry. But then when, when the industry emerged from that, uh, we had done a good job of uh, kind of laying the groundwork and then lo and behold, we're laying the groundwork for growth. And, uh, and then lo and behold, you know, fracking kind of became uh, the new big thing starting in, 
maybe around 2011 thereabouts, and um, and and that you know created huge new investment, um, particularly along the Gulf Coast, which was our uh, you know the, where the most of our business was. Now by then we had expanded the the footprint of the business even before SGS. Uh, into New Jersey, into uh, the Delaware River area, and really all into Canada. Uh, so we were probably 800 employees at the time of the sale uh, in 2004, and then uh, and continued to grow steadily uh, from there, both in terms of our headcount and revenue, but also in terms of our geographic footprint. So then when the, when the fracking phenomenon and all of the ethylene and, and the cracking began to happen, and industry began to invest heavily in those units, uh, particularly in the Gulf Coast. We were perfectly positioned to take advantage of that uh, and grow with those companies. Crude by rail uh, became a big thing uh, there in the uh, you know 2012 through about 2016, and we participated uh, in all of that growth as well. So we were. We were uh, a very, very uh, successful acquisition for SGS, and uh, we we grew by double digits every year while continuing to improve our safety and operating performance. We won. I remember um, again; it's hard to tell all this in perfect chronological order without notes. But we won uh, one year the Coast Guard's highest award for environmental excellence, called the Binkert Award (B E N K E R T), named after Admiral William Binkert. I remember Kirby was the first company to ever win that award, but but we won it uh, in our division uh, there uh, a few years later for the operation of uh, of a dock facility here in Louisiana. It was uh, it's now Westlake in Plaquemine, Louisiana, but it was Georgia Gulf and before that Georgia Pacific for many years, and we operated it for I don't know thirty years, I think. Uh, and billions of gallons of, of product with and never had a single spill into the water, which was unprecedented. And uh, tens of thousands of cargo transfers. So we won the Bankert Award for that. Um, we, we achieved other awards uh, in rail safety. Uh, we were the first ever uh, site OSHA awarded its uh, OSHA star rating for voluntary protection program, which is OSHA's highest award. We won that for rail switching, I think, at the Chevron Phillips Cedar Bayou plant uh, back in 2016, if I recall the date, maybe a little earlier. So just a lot of success uh, in the company. And my children were young at the time. My, my daughter was born in 97. My son was born in 99. So we were living here in Baton Rouge. And it was a lot of fun uh, raising them um, and uh, being the leader of PSC, which was having so much uh a success. And also I got to travel a lot around the world uh, and interact with other SGS uh, folks. We were the global, what they called competence center for this kind of work. Uh, so uh, I got phone calls from all over the world, people looking into maybe trying to do the kind of work that we did in, in other places. Uh, and, and we helped, uh, you know, support some of those operations uh, here and there. But the fact of the matter is, for, for lots of reasons, which I came to discover, the idea of outsourcing, whether it's tankerman or, or rail switching or loading or, or plant operations or terminal operations, the idea of outsourcing that uh, is really the most, it's, it's, it's found its home and is most widely accepted in the United States and particularly in the Gulf Coast. Uh, you have union issues uh, that that are kind of pushed back against the idea of outsourcing on the U.S. West Coast and and U.S. East Coast and and big chunks of the Midwest. I think a lot of that in recent years is eroding a little bit, but still, um, you know, the U.S. model of outsourcing uh, the kind of work that we do is the most efficient. Uh, op uh, it's the most efficient application of that model, I think, in the world, and I think I can say that with a fair amount of confidence. Um, it has done some in Europe, it's done some in, in Asia, but, uh, you know, in Asia, uh, there are cultural reasons why they don't like to outsource, and in, and in Europe, there are social costs that the government imposes that makes it harder to differentiate on a cost basis, um, uh, and, and so, uh, 
uh, I, I just learned that what we do here in the U.S., uh, we do it uh, better than anybody else, and we do it more uh, cost ef effectively than anyone else in the world. But, but so, so I was the liaison between, uh, you know, my company and SGS, but and, and built a wonderful team to to lead, you know, PSC to to some really unprecedented growth and success. So then. Kind of the next major step in my career was uh, uh, I left, uh, believe it or not, uh, PSC in 2017. And uh, there were a lot of reasons that led up to that. It's something that I've been thinking about a long time. But when we when we sold the company in 2004, I signed a, a one year employment contract, which uh, I think was all they expected me to stay. Uh, I think typically people that sell their companies, a lot of times they'll stay. But. Uh, if they don't have to work, uh, a lot of times they don't and they go do something else. But I couldn't think of anything else. I like doing more. I was having a lot of fun. And, and as I said, raising a young family, it was good to uh, have something to get up and do every day that I loved and come home to them uh, most nights uh, when I wasn't away. But um, uh, so I wound up staying much longer than they anticipated. Uh, but eventually there were changes in SGS um, in their leadership. Uh, changes in the way that the relationship evolved and we made it work for a long time but uh, ultimately I wasn't having the fun that I uh, that I thought I wanted to have and that I deserved and I was too young to retire uh, or at least had too much energy so at the age of 57 um, in 2017 uh, I decided to leave I had a non-compete um, which uh, uh, I honored of course and uh, the there was a bit of controversy over my leaving, but uh, as you might expect, but ultimately I worked it out with SGS and, um, and, and waited out my two-year non-compete and then launched uh, uh, Lodestar. And uh, so Lodestar is uh, a company very much in the model of, uh, of my former company. Uh, it's designed to do the same kind of work. Uh, and that is uh, tankerman work, dock operations, uh, loading and unloading at rail, truck, warehouse, tank farm, uh, anything involving material handling and site logistics. And what does life look like personally for you and your family going forward? Do you have plans to retire one day? Well, I suppose. I mean, my dad, uh, my dad loved to work, although he's one of those people. He had a great work-life balance. He, uh, but he did he did work really uh, actively until he was in his late 80s, almost 90, and he died at 96. So <laughs> I don't think I will uh, die at my desk, as, as some say. But I think working keeps you young. Uh, I enjoy the, the creativity. You know, the name Lodestar, um, I had to put my creative hat on and think of a name uh, for, a, for a brand new company. And uh, so when I was in college, I had studied... Uh, uh, astronomy a lot. And when I was in law school, I, I uh, took admiralty law and, and practiced in, in that area a little bit. So I was familiar with the term lodestar, L-O-D-E-S-T-A-R. And that's the, the star that the ancient mariners steered by, the, the North Star. It's the brightest star in the sky. And the connotation of lodestar to me was always about leadership. It was about discovery. It was about uh, new horizons. It was about the future. So when I came up with the name Lodestar, uh, I just did a play on words and changed the, the lettering to L-O-A-D-S-T-A-R. And, um, uh, but but the, the idea is that Lodestar is very much a company for the future. Uh, it's not a company of the, of the last generation. It's a company for the next generation. So there's a lot of cool imagery that goes with Lodestar um, and um, the idea, if you look at our website, there's a kind of dawn to, there's a dawn sense in the last, it, 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 there, there are pictures of sunrises and things like, like uh, about the future and about what's coming. So, you know, I have a lot of hobbies that I do. Uh, you know, I'm, I love to hunt and fish, uh, being from South Louisiana. Uh, we have uh, a summer home in, in Montana near Glacier National Park that we've had for close to 20 years. I love to spend summers up there and uh, play golf and hike and do all the things you do in, in the nice weather. Uh, I love to cook. Uh, 
uh, and so I, I, you know, I just, I do a lot of philanthropic work, uh, particularly here in Baton Rouge and serve on several boards and leadership positions. So I'm never really bored and, and I expect that I will, uh, stay with Lodestar, um, uh, you know, until, uh, until I can't do it anymore. So, um, uh, but, but, but have already, you know, trained a, a wonderful team that if I wasn't there tomorrow, I'm quite confident that that team would uh, be able to take this vision for this new company, which they all have embraced and, and adopted as their own and, uh, and move it forward because the industry, I think very much is wanting and needing uh, a great company uh, in this area uh, that, that we service. And so um, I expect that I will continue to work actively uh, for, the for, for the foreseeable future um, and, you know, do the things that I need to do to balance it, as I've always done, quality of life with travel and time with my wife and, and family and friends. And uh, are your children involved in the business or do you expect them to be? <laughs> I get asked that question a lot. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, uh, I didn't build the company for them. Uh, I built it for me and for the employees and for the customers. Uh, um, but they're both very talented. Uh, my daughter is uh, uh, working right now in Washington, D.C. for uh, a major consulting firm there. Uh, I think she's 25 and enjoying being uh, uh, a young single woman in such an exciting city. But um, but she's also a Southern girl. And, um, you know, wouldn't surprise me if uh, if she came back home one day. But I I'm not uh, planning on that. It would be wonderful. She's extremely capable. And uh uh, so we'll see. Uh, my son, uh, kind of the same thing. He's here in town. He, he, both my children went off to school and she stayed away, but he's, he's come back home. He's kind of being an entrepreneur right now and uh, dabbling in different things and, um, and, and much the same way. I would be delighted if he made that choice. But, uh, you know, I remember when I was that age and, and I went off to school and wandered all around and didn't want to have anything to do with our family business for a few years. Uh, not because I didn't like it, but I just had other things I wanted to do. So I, I very much understand my children uh, wanting to make their own way in the world and, and see the world and do things. But, uh, you know, if my own life experience is any guide, uh, I suppose I felt the calling to come back and take advantage of this wonderful opportunity that my father and my brothers had had started and and helped grow it and and shape it and and leave it to others, which you know I'm very proud of the years I worked at Petroleum Service and the thousands of people that we employed and thousands of families that I you know we helped uh, make a great life for and give them a career and and so I think that human nature being what it is, it wouldn't surprise me if my children at some point. Uh, felt that same calling and one or both of them decided to join. But um, right now, I don't I don't really talk to them about it that much. I don't want to put any pressure on them. And uh, I let them uh, make their own way and, and support them in whatever they do. Well, is there anything else you'd like to share about the industry or anything going forward? No, I mean, it, to you know, however long we've spent here, uh, a little over an hour maybe, is there's no way you can do justice to the uh, you know, the kind of story uh, that, that, that I could tell or tell on behalf of others about all the things I've learned, all the people that have helped me along the way, uh, the people I'm grateful for, you know, the, the, the older I get, I suppose, the more, the more gratitude becomes the overwhelming sense that I feel every day. Uh, gratitude for um, so many people that have helped me personally and professionally and for my family and, uh, and the good health that I have and the friends that I have. And so, you know, I try and turn that back into the Lodestar experience. Um, um, you know, we had a, a, a major customer the other day call us and say something that really meant a lot to me. Um, and they said, this is a major industry player uh, that everyone would know. And they said, you know, we're going to give you guys more work in 2023 and we want to tell you why. And uh, they said the, the first reason is because uh, so far, all the work you guys have done for us has just been outstanding. And we're very impressed with the quality of the work and the safety and all the things they said. But so the second reason and these reasons, they were very specific. They were presented in order 
of their importance to this company. And they said, the, the first reason is your, the quality of your work and your safety. The second reason though, is the character of your employees and the character of your company generally. And the third reason they said is your competitive pricing. Now, you know, I've been, I've been in our industry a long time. I have never heard a company cite character as a reason uh, to give uh, an award work to people. Uh, that's usually other reasons. And, and uh, so I, I think it's a testament to what we're trying to do at Lodestar, which is to build something that's, um, that, that is a bit unique, uh, that's not just another uh, industrial contractor uh, you know, that's providing a living for folks. We're trying to have an experience that, uh, and our mission is to be the premier service provider. So I'm not doing this to, you know, uh, to just play the game. Uh, I want to, I want to be the, the industry leader and help bring about the kind of positive change, whether it's through technological, uh, innovation or other things, because our industry is, evolving and and you know we live in a world of of rapid change and we all have iphones and and amazon and lots of things that look like the 21st century and yet in many ways our industry is uh, still operating very much in the uh, in the way that it always has and so someone described it to me one time and i've used this a lot because i love this imagery i said you know we're we've been in the flintstones and at some point we're all going to have to be the jetsons and I don't know how long that's going to take, but I think it's going to happen sooner than folks think. And to me, part of the excitement of, of, of why I'm still and why I'm excited about Lodestar is I think we can be a participant, if not a leader, in that effort to uh, help our customers uh, and our employees evolve from wherever we are on that scale between the Flintstones and the Jetsons. Uh, but I know we're going to get there and automation and uh, and, and other things that are exciting and how do you apply those things and, and what new, new thinking has to come. That's all to me very uh, exciting and pulls on and requires all of the talent and experience and creativity that I have to, to think about that. So I feel very blessed and feel, as I keep saying, a lot of gratitude to all the people that have helped me along the way. Uh, and to all the people that are part of Lodestar uh, now and, and the whole large universe of people that, um, that are in my life. So I'm grateful for Sherry Felder for telling me about you uh, and grateful to, uh, to you for taking time to, to hear all this. Um, and, and so I want to thank you for that. Well, it's no problem at all. Uh, thank you very much for your time today. I, uh, maybe we can do this again one, one of these days. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks for what you're doing for our industry. I think it's really cool. Thanks a lot. All right. Bye-bye.